This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Haymarket Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like and that is incredibly urgent right now is From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamada-Taylor. In this stirring and insightful analysis, activist and scholar Kianga Yamada-Taylor surveys the historical and contemporary ravages of racism and persistence of structural inequality such as mass incarceration and black unemployment. In this context, she argues that this new struggle against police violence holds the potential to reignite a broader push for black liberation. As Michelle Alexander, author of The New Jim Crow, says of the book, Kianga Yamada-Taylor's searching examination of the social, political, and economic dimensions of the prevailing racial order offers important context for understanding the necessity of the emerging movement for black liberation. From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamada-Taylor. Out now from Haymarket Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It is clear that we in the United States do indeed live in an exceptional nation. Our government is exceptionally bad at managing this pandemic in terms of both public health and the economy. So bad that it looks like Americans will, along with Russians and Brazilians, be barred from entry to Europe due to our infection rates remaining out of control. A entirely revealing and ironic turn for this country, given that throughout its history, it has been a world leader in crafting racist immigration restrictions and then border militarization. Meanwhile, our government remains exceptionally good at killing and locking people up, particularly poor people, particularly poor black people. These grotesqueries are all related to another fundamental American exceptionalism. As my guest today, Mike Davis, puts it, quote, a signal absence of working-class self-organization and consciousness comparable in scope to that represented in every other capitalist country by the prevalence of laborist, social democratic, or communist parties is the specter that has long haunted American Marxism. This is an interview on Davis's first book from 1986, Prisoners of the American Dream. Politics and Economy in the History of the U.S. Working Class. Davis takes on the full sweep of post-revolutionary U.S. history. It's a really remarkable, capacious book. And he identifies these key conjunctures where massive and intense class conflict created an opening for a more powerful, unified, and permanent left party and radical union movement to emerge. And yet time and again, that did not happen. Davis identifies many causes, but one persistent theme is that anti-immigrant nativism and anti-black racism mapped onto a segmented capitalist labor market repeatedly pit workers against one another instead of against their bosses, fragmenting solidarity and empowering capitalists and their two political parties. In the epilogue to his book, Davis makes a powerful argument for the lead role that must be played by Black and Latino Democratic struggles in any successful left project in this country. 
And he warns white leftists against failing to take this objective reality seriously. And I'm going to read from him at length on this. Quote, As Lenin pointed out three quarters of a century ago, with a perspicacity that is yet to be fully assimilated, political consciousness comes from outside the immediate field of the economic class struggle, which is not to say that it is superimposed on the working class by intellectuals, but rather that it grows out of the overdetermination of the economic class struggle by other contradictions and forms of oppression. One must not forget that in the USA, too, the hard core of Debsian socialism derived from the situation of an immigrant proletariat that endured economic exploitation along with cultural discrimination and, most often in factory towns, de facto political disenfranchisement. Or, to frame the problem in Lenin's terms, are there any subaltern strata whose class position is fused with a special oppression that transcends the limits of bourgeois political form and whose struggle for daily survival, therefore, generates anti-systemic elements of protest and political solidarity? Early suffrage and a pioneering mass party system did help deflect the thrust of early white working class organization from independent political expression. But this has not altered the fact that the oppression of blacks has remained a central contradiction at the heart of the American bourgeois democratic system. Substantive economic citizenship for black and Hispanic America would require levels of change dangerously close to the threshold of socialist transformation. He goes on, quote, My thesis is that, if there is to be any popular left, it will develop in the first instance through the mobilization of the radical political propensities in the black and perhaps Hispanic working classes. Reciprocally, the validity and popular appeal of any socialist program or strategy will depend on the degree to which it addresses the axial problem of the revolutionary democratic struggle for equality. To do so, leftists must reject the majoritarian fallacy, nurtured by fellow traveling in the Democratic Party, that all socialist politics must be cut to fit the pattern of whatever modish liberalism is in fashion, or to conform with the requirements for securing practical democratic pluralities. The horizon of the possible and the necessary is not the quixotic project of becoming a loyal fringe of one or another of the capitalist parties, but the fight to build an independent left politics that has real and effective social anchorage. To the extent that sections of the Democratic Party or elements of the middle strata can return to more traditional liberal positions, it will only be because independent forces to their left are militant and well-organized, with demands unvetted by the realism of consensus-building with establishment politics. This analysis from Davis is precisely the sort of analysis that we need right now, one of neoliberal identity politics' greatest ideological victories has been to make some leftists mistakenly believe that black liberation struggles are neoliberal identity politics. These uprisings are not a distraction from the real socialist project. These are, instead, the sort of mass movements, 
movements that combine democratic and economic struggle through which American socialism must emerge. As I wrote in a recent essay in Jacobin, quote, This uprising is attacking the neoliberal settlement at its racist and securitized core, winning support for the demand to defund police and reinvest in basic services. The decades-long rollout of the security state displaced class conflict. The current movement reignites it, demanding a state that funds care instead of repression. Before we get started, I wanted to mention three, yes, three things. First, antibody. Our first attempt to do socialist this American life has come to an end, for now. Stories from day laborers in prison, Amazon warehouse workers in a New York City hospital, on Kropotkin and mutual aid, and Dungeons and Dragons, and a lot more. I'm really, really proud of what we put together. Please do take a listen you can find all the antibody episodes at thedigradio.com slash antibody. And please do share it with anyone who might like it. I don't think there's anything else quite like it. We will likely do more of this in the future, depending on time and funding. It might even still be called antibody. We will see. I am very grateful to everyone who supports us at patreon.com slash thedig for making this show in general, and antibody in particular, possible. These things cost money and time, which requires money under capitalism. Anyhow, we could not have done it without your contributions. And I will link to antibody in the show notes in case you missed it. If you'd like us to keep doing stuff like this, please do contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. And then second, I have this very new lengthy essay at Jacobin that I just mentioned, quoted from a minute ago, that I think you'll like. It's on Trump's authoritarianism, Corona, the uprisings, the liberal complicity and denial of Trump in this moment's origins in ordinary bipartisan security and law and order politics. The basic argument is very much in sync with this interview, which is that an attack on the law and order system is key to dismantling neoliberalism. I will link to that essay in the show notes as well. I don't write essays very often, and this one pretty much represents everything I think about what's going on right now. So if you're curious about what I think, please give it a read. Finally, the Dig Book Clubs are going strong. We've done two books so far, Kim Phillips Fine's Fear City and Mike Davis's Prisoners of the American Dream or as Gabe Winnant insists that I call it, POTAD. Next up is The Young Lords, A Radical History, by Johanna Fernandez. I'm about a quarter of the way through the book, and it's incredible, and unsurprisingly, incredibly relevant right now. The way these dig book clubs work is that you can either plug into a book club that listeners have already organized, or you can start your own. We at The Dig choose one book a month from the books that we're doing episodes on, and then we organize a Zoom meeting with the author. You are free to organize your club however you want, like you can choose a second book to do each month if you'd like, you can meet as often and when you'd like, etc. If you'd like to join or start a Dig book club where you live, or with your friends and comrades who live all over the place, find out more 
at thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. That's thedigradio.com slash dig hyphen book hyphen club. Okay, here is Mike Davis, who continues to follow the path he first chose in 1962 when he became a teenage member of the Congress of Racial Equality. He has written so many incredible books, including City of Courts, Planet of Slums, The Monster at Our Door, The Global Threat of Avian Flu, and, of course, Prisoners of the American Dream. His latest book is Set the Night on Fire, L.A. in the 60s, co-authored with John Wiener. Mike Davis, welcome back to The Dig. Thank you. In your book, Prisoners of the American Dream, at the height of the Reagan era, you set out to determine why the United States has long been so exceptional in certain really critical and bad ways. You write, quote, A signal absence of working class self-organization and consciousness comparable in scope to that represented in every other capitalist country by the prevalence of laborist, social democratic, or communist parties is the specter that has long haunted American Marxism. To start off, what was the general question you were trying to answer then in your general answer, and to what degree do you have the same analysis today, more than three decades later? Well, the book, of course, was um, written in the mid-1980s and very much was an attempt to address that particular moment just after Reagan's re-election, uh, the beginning of you know massive U.S. intervention into Central America and sweeping changes in the American economy, including the beginning of plant closure. And the book really has two parts. The first part looks at this whole question of American labor's failure to obtain independent uh, representation of its interests via a socialist or labor party. That's a very traditional question. And um, actually, quite a few books have been written about trying to address it. The second part of the book is an anatomy of Reaganism and the deep transformations in the social structure and uh, economy and that time. Now, traditionally, there have been two approaches to looking at this question of why no socialism in America, why no labor party. The classical Marxist approach conceived that the American working class was simply still in formation, that it was an immature working class, which would rapidly mature in an explosion of militant class struggles and soon follow the uh, what you might call the normal path of labor movements, both in Western Europe and in Britain in the colonies of white, its colonies of white settlement. And Marx, Engels, Kautsky and Lenin all believed this, some form of this. Yeah, I mean, you know, Engels came to the United States with Marx's daughter, uh, Eleanor, at a time when the Knights of Labor were at their height and very excited. He thought this was the moment, the transforming moment. It also, his visit also coincided with Henry George's 
very successful campaign for mayor of New York, Henry George, who's the most important American homegrown radical of the period, just narrowly lost the election, but dramatically overwhelmed the uh, the third candidate, one Theodore Roosevelt. So to Ingalls, this, this seemed to be the moment of, of maturation. But of course, within five years, the the Knights of Labor was marginal or disappeared from the scene. Subsequently, both Lenin and and Trotsky, Lenin saw American labor and uh, particularly the great strikes at the end that followed the end of the First World War in, in 1919, one of the two greatest strike years in American history. And Trotsky, of course, looked to the creation of the CIO and particularly the sit-down strike wave in 1937 and 1938. But the idea of a kind of normal path to class consciousness and class political unity, of course, proven to be false in the case of, of the United States. And so in these debates about the absence of a labor party or socialism, the tendency has been to fall back on idealistic uh, an essentialist interpretations of, of American history. For example, the absence of feudalism in the United States, or the in fact that the United States, according to the Louis Hart School, political historians, was the most advanced fragment of British society, had been relocated to the New World. So, he argues that America was born with this kind of Lockean liberal essence that you know precluded socialism. And this point of view often argues that socialism and laborism in Europe were the result of the conjoined struggles for unionization and for suffrage. Or in the United States, universal male suffrage for white males had been achieved. It was already very common, actually, at the time of the revolution, but it had been achieved almost universally in the Jacksonian period in, in the 1830s. I try and take a different approach, uh, which rejects both a kind of uh, universal or normalized path of development for labor during the course of industrial revolution, or these kind of, you know, essentialist analysis, these deep enduring structures that supposedly disable worker consciousness. And I suppose my approach could almost be described as a kind of military history in that successive ways of labor organization and militancy, of class struggle, reaching in, in, in some in instances an actual insurrectionary level, as occurred in the Great Railroad Strikes of 1877, or during the uh, the uh, the Pullman strike a generation later, that you've had these upsurges that open up new possibilities for broad solidarity amongst workers, that at least temporarily overcome the divisions inside uh, the working class uh, between Protestant and Catholic, black and white old immigrant and a new immigrant. But the outcome of these battles and the attempt to translate economic militancy into political consciousness uh, 
determines the fate of subsequent moments in history and a series of defeats that actually then circumscribe, not necessarily permanently or completely, but nonetheless circumscribe the opportunities to find a political expression of the labor movement that unifies uh, workers and defends at least their elementary interests. For example, in the way that the labor parties in England, uh, Australia, and uh, uh, New Zealand have historically, which emerged in the end of the 1890s. A major theme of, of your book is the role that democratic struggles play in socialist and left politics. And we'll return to the topic again a few times later on in the interview. But but a foundational example of this is with the, the, the American Revolution. You write, quote, the American bourgeoisie is the only classical revolutionary democratic bourgeoisie in world history. All other bourgeois democratic revolutions have depended, to one degree or another, upon plebeian wings or surrogates to defeat aristocratic reaction and demolish the structure of the ancient regimes. The United States, by contrast, was a, quote, unique process of capitalist national liberation. Explain why the nature of the American Revolution, its, its bourgeois character, and also the role of, of smallholder agriculture and religion in American life, how that all made the democratic struggle such a fundamentally conservative one. Well, I mean, we should remember that the French Revolution, the classical revolution, the bourgeoisie's role in it is a very complicated question. It's been contested from from different sides. You know, politically, it was led by people like lawyers and ex-priests. And its greatest energy, of course, you know, came from uh, Parisian artisans and the working class, as well as peasants in the countryside. But in the American case, you, you had alliances of merchants and southern plantation owners that had a very clear idea of the future. It conceived the United States from the very beginning, even before it conceived the United States as a republic, conceived it as an empire. And of course, one of the major causes of the revolution was the British attempt to establish a border to Western settlement to confine the population to the East Coast, the so-called line of, of, of demarcation. And the mutual interest of conquering the First Nations and opening up frontiers you know, for settlement was an overriding goal of the, the revolution, but it was overdetermined by the popular classes, at least the white popular classes and artisan classes, who wanted the revolution to also become a movement for equal rights against the class divides that were rapidly developing in the United States. So here you have an example of colonial liberation, bourgeois revolution, uh, where the leading role is actually played by merchants and, and uh, you know, in planners, though always challenged by artisans and small farmers to extend the boundaries of the revolution, to turn it into something more like the French Revolution. Now, from that period on until the Civil War, the problem with the initial vision 
of an American empire is simply that the U.S. remains in so many ways an economic dependency of Great Britain. It's unable to achieve real economic autonomy. And after the beginning of the cotton boom following the war of, of 1812, the southern economy in large part becomes fully integrated into the British economy. The cotton that's the backbone of the Industrial Revolution in England is produced by slaves on on southern uh, uh, plantation. So the Civil War, and I very much believe, very much am in the tradition of those who regard it as a second revolution, was to achieve real, complete economic autonomy and to create the conditions for industrial revolution. But that could only be done by, at the same time, uh, sponsoring the you know the mobility of workers and, and farmers, at least you know in far as the political platform did, and slavery, the slave system had had to be crushed to create the full conditions for a capitalist economy and an economy that was free of its. Uh, dependency and control by the uh, the city of London. And you note that there was no strong labor abolitionist wing to, to Lincoln Republicanism, even though the Civil War obviously had the, the virtue of, of smashing the slave system. It was not due to Republicanism being being powered by a more a more radical ideology. The Civil War, because it had aspects of being a revolutionary war, like during the English Revolution or during the French Revolution, had its own internal dynamic that pushed particularly in the core of the Union Army toward an embrace of abolitionism and a full representative democracy. But the labor movement, which had exploded from the 1830s onward, in Atlantic seaboard cities and in a few places in the, uh, the Ohio Valley, was confronted in the 1850s, first of all, by this huge wave of uh, immigration driven by famine and by counter-revolution from Ireland and Germany, but also by attempts to align through the Democratic Party the rebellion of Eastern workers with the support of slavery on the idea that the best allies of the labor movement uh, and the Atlantic seaboard were actually slave owners, not slaves, not people of color. So labor abolitionism was stillborn for the the most part. It ran up against the hardcore anti-black racism of Irish immigrants. Well, of course, that racism was created in the United States. It wasn't necessarily brought over from Ireland any more than uh, a strong sense of Irish national identity was necessarily brought over. Uh, that was created in America. I mean, people came over and they, you know, they were they were from uh, Munster, Antrim or Cork City. And it's only facing this huge wall of, of hostility that they fully embraced Irish nationalism. And of course, the immigration coincided with the great emancipation struggle in Ireland. And it's noteworthy that 
O'Connell, the champion of Ireland, the leader of the emancipation colony, the most famous Irishman of the day, himself was a fervent abolitionist. He was a radical Democrat. He even warned of basically excommunicating the Irish in America unless they supported the abolition of, of slavery. But that was largely ignored. And of course, there are are still debates on, on why that happened. Uh, Noel uh, Ignatiev, of course, wrote a famous book on how the Irish became white that looks precisely at this question. German immigrants, they're so neglected in most accounts of American history, however, were a different species. So many of them were artisans, uh, intellectuals, fleeing from the defeat of the Revolution of 1848 and from Prussian repression. And German-American workers tended to be uh, the great exception, and far larger numbers were abolitionists and radical Democrats in a, in a consistent way. And they formed the core of the uh, of American left, of American socialism, for the next 50, uh, 50 years or more. Socialism in the United States becomes largely a story of uh, German-speaking workers in the upper Midwest. It's only in the 1890s that, that Jewish socialism becomes a, a major force in New York and a few other cities. After the Civil War, and you touched on this a few minutes back, the, the Knights of Labor and the Farmers Alliance and the whole populist movement emerges, and it did attempt in various ways to universalize American freedom, to use a, a phrase from Aziz Rana, to create an expansive working class culture and labor movement, though there were important exceptions such as Chinese workers. But what allowed for this moment of radical politics to, to take shape when it did after the, the Civil War and why were the, the populists then ultimately frustrated in, in building lasting working class power? You, you point to a number of factors, the expanding settler capitalist frontier and the way it, it, it sort of patterns an, of uneven capitalist development across the expanding country, uh, the nativist reaction to new immigrants from southern and eastern Europe, the rise of urban political machines and the white southern reaction, of course, against Reconstruction and also against a Southern reaction against interracial agrarian populism. How do all of these fit together in the late 19th century to explain the destruction of this incredible and seemingly very promising at the time post-bellum radical moment? They were not inevitable. There were opportunities there that were never fully developed for one reason or another. But the historical possibilities existed at least through periods, and they crystallized new forces. The Civil War itself basically overcame uh, much of the division between native-born Protestant workers and Irish and German immigrants. And you saw extraordinary unity in the urban uprisings that supported the great Railroad Rebellion in 1877. This was America's equivalent to the Paris Commune where tens of thousands of uh, workers and people from, from the slums of Chicago and other great cities 
fought against the, the railroad barons. The railroad corporations were the first national corporations, and the railroad working class was the first segment of the labor movement to be organized nationally, uh, essentially be a single national working class. So the great class struggle to the second half of the 19th century uh, all tended to originate as uh, labor rebellions, attempts at organization by by railroad workers. Again, in the 1880s, you had uh, two or three years of sustained insurgency and violent battles on the railroads linked to a new birth of, uh, or rebirth of unionism in many northern cities. This is a period when Henry George ran for mayor of New York and almost won on a, on a uh, working men's party uh, platform. And in the 1890s, actually beginning in the late 1880s, but coming fruition in the 1890s, was this astonishing movement whose base was largely in the, in the South and uh, in Texas a rebellion of, of small tenant farmers, both black and white, against the post-Reconstruction order, the Jim Crow order in, in the South. And you should remember that poor whites were disenfranchised by poll taxes and other means that were used to strip political power and the vote away from uh, blacks in the South. And several million poor whites were also reduced to the status of, of cotton tenants, which was a form of, of uh, peonage in America that by the 1920s, there were some 20 million Americans who tenants or sharecroppers in the South and the Southwest. And this was their first uh, rebellion. It took on an interracial form. At the same time, there was a powerful labor movement in New Orleans. The, the docks were divided into uh, two groups of workers and two unions, uh, uh, or union locals, one black and one white, but nonetheless collaborated uh, in the 1890s, making New Orleans the most powerful uh, labor insurgency you know, in the South. So this was somewhat astonishing that the radicalism was now in the periphery in the South and the West and the West amongst railroad workers and miners. And the creation of the, the People's Party as a national movement of agrarian discontent opened the opportunity to, to, to progressive labor leaders, former Knights of Labor or the left wing of the of the new organization, the American Federation of Labor, uh, to begin to see the possibility of a farmer labor movement and farmer labor movement that was independent of both the Republican and, and the Democratic Party. But the People's Party was a coalition in the agrarian side between these small southern and, and western farmers and the larger commercial farmers, the grain growers, uh, wheat growers, uh, and corn growers of the, uh, of the Midwest. And it was the commercial farmers 
who ended up dominating and bolting to with William Jennings Bryan to the banner of of, uh, of uh, cheap credit through silver currency, which became this one issue panacea. But that might have not been a complete disaster, except for the sustained offensive that broke a general strike on the on the river in, in New Orleans, and the racial terror that divided and destroyed the the Farmers Alliance in the Deep South. You, you mentioned that the, the left wing of the AFL was playing a role in that whole populist moment. And you write that the AFL, which which ultimately became the most reactionary force in American labor was by no means inevitably the conservative business union federation that it became, which is which is hard to remember. Yeah, I mean, the American Federation was uh, a hybrid. It included the organized or organizing craft aristocracy of American labor, who by the 1890s were faced with the bank directed reorganization of American industry into giant corporations, followed by uh, massive attacks on the power of skilled workers. Because through the 1890s, even, and a typical, you know, for instance, steel plan or pioneering electrical plan or, uh, you know, whatever, skilled workers still had great job uh, autonomy. I'll never forget once when I was teaching in the Northwest, going on a tour of a of a mill. And the Sawyer, the guy who sharpened uh, the saws in this timber mill, uh, had this totally enclosed room. It was blacked out, so the bosses couldn't see. So they didn't know what he, what he did. So they wouldn't know what his actual craft uh, was. They couldn't study it or control him. And that kind of autonomy, I mean, that's a, a dramatic example, but that kind of economy was absolutely uh, widespread in the, the second wave of the Industrial Revolution in America, but it was under sustained attack from uh, the 1890s onwards. So that was one part of the AFL, but the AFL also included groups like the uh, United Mine Workers, in which in hard rock mining, there was more of a skilled to unskilled divide. But the United Mine Workers, uh, by the very essence of their work and nature of the industry, were an industrial union, and in a sense, the first real industrial union in the country. So the AFL had various uh, possibilities. It had a, you know, a strong left wing. Labor Day, for instance, was not created, as many people believe, as a uh, alternative to May Day, an anti-radical uh, Labor Day. Uh, its greatest advocate was one of the socialist uh, leaders of the, uh, you know, the AFL. The division between the AFL and the massive industrial, unorganized industrial workers, really only solidified in the labor struggles just before the First World War when skilled craftsmen in mass production industries and in steel basically betrayed rebellions of uh, Eastern and Southern European uh, new immigrants who composed most of the manpower in the factories. 
This was a labor rebellion organized by the industrial workers of the world and in many places. But the shape of a national labor movement and the influence of the different currents and the role of socialists and other radicals in the labor movement at the time of the corporate consolidation of manufacturing. This was, in a sense, uh, up for grabs. And is the reason that it went from up to grabs towards a decidedly conservative direction because of this race segmentation of the working class with skilled work being raced as white and an American with semi and unskilled labor being raced as, as immigrant or foreign? Well, the the new immigration of the 1890s from uh, Southern and Eastern, Eastern European basically gave it uh, a new life to nativism and something called the American uh, Protective Association, which was an anti-immigrant movement that had support in sections of the uh, older native or old immigrant working classes. But the very nature of the new system of production that was created uh, in the first decade into of the 20th century, which was based on the simple the division of work into simple tasks, which could then be rationalized so that really all you needed was somebody with the the muscles and stamina to perform the same tasks or simple short tasks repeatedly at the fastest speed. I mean, this was the essence of, of mass production, but it still included a large role uh, for skilled workers, even as their autonomy was un, under attack. So there's a huge gulf in a typical factory between the largely native or old immigrant skilled workers and this new class of people. They weren't unskilled workers. They were the, the semi-skilled, the, uh, the factory operatives a class which had first appeared, of course, in the 1830s in the in Lancashire and then, you know, you know, in England. And of course, employers used ethnic uh, segmentation. It, one practice was to divide apartments according to ethnicity, to divide workers up. So there was an astonishment when in 1909, starting at a strike at a uh, a huge plant that made uh, railroad boxcars, the Press Steel plant outside of uh, just outside of Pittsburgh, where they had nine or ten thousand immigrant workers, rose up in a sustained struggle, betrayed by their skilled white counterparts who refused to support the strike. But they won a stunning victory, and subsequent analysis showed that the new immigrants, far from being this idea. Of uh, you know, Southern Italian peasants and benighted peasants from Hungary and Eastern Europe included large numbers of blacklisted uh, labor militants from Europe. And this pressed steel plant had, amongst other things, veterans of Austrian social democracy, Italian anarchists, a couple of members of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, a couple of British ex-shop uh, stewards and uh, and so on. And their combined experiences gave these struggles sophistication that was just incomprehensible. 
both to the uh, dominant media, but also to the employers themselves. And that's, of course, when also the IWW stepped in uh, to lead the strike wave in many cities because the AFL's uh, uh, reluctance to do so, or often it's uh, downright opposition. The division of American labor between skilled and unskilled, between ethno-religious groups, persists right through the uh, you know the great struggles of you know of the 1930s and the birth of the CIO. You write that these these same divides were replicated with within American socialism, which you write quote remained a series of ethnically and linguistically segmented socialisms, and that also quote that that the discord between the struggles of the craft unions and unorganized immigrants was carried into the Socialist Party in the form of a conflict between its reformist and syndicalist wings. And you write that both sides sort of failed to grasp what might have been the winning formula, and that Debs, Eugene Debs was often alone in, in pushing for American socialism to head down that path. Eugene Victor Debs is an extraordinary figure in American uh, history. He was by no means the, a theoretician or a great intellectual, but his immense practical experience during the Pullman strike and leading the railroad union and in subsequent strikes convinced him that the solution had to be unitary industrial unionism rather than the craft monopolies that had come to dominate the AFL or the IWW's attempt to create industrial unions as basically revolutionary organizations. The problem with the IWW, and I think virtually everybody in the American left carries a lot of IWW genes in their political chromosomes. The IWW was exceptional in reinforcing rank-and-file militancy and participatory democracy in the labor movement. But they turned in a more syndicalist direction in the course of these, uh, of these great strikes. And they had no real solutions to the problem of immigrant workers as citizens. They had no real answer to the political patronage machine that controlled immigrant captive votes or to the problems of daily life of of rent and housing. The sole focus on industrial organization gave them tremendous energy and, and sustained commitment, but it only answered part of the questions that uh, immigrant poor uh, workers would ask of organ, uh, organization, which is not only, you know, how to organize at the point of production, but how to obtain more control on community life, how, how to deal with housing and high food prices, how to deal with, you know, right-wing, you know, local government. And Debs had something of an all-embracing vision of that, as did members of the left, other members of the left wing of the Socialist Party. But the person who was really the most important and was the bridge between the IWW and socialism, which was 
Big Bill Hayward was, of course, purged after the 1910 campaign by the right wing of the of the Socialist Party. The, the right wing was largely German. It had already obtained political power in places like Milwaukee. It was based in craft unions like cigar makers, brewery workers, and so on. And it would go on to further split the party in 1918, which became uh, another disastrous divide in the history of the American left. The 20s, of course, was a decade of of reaction following the reactionary moment of of 100% americanism and nativism and anti-communism anti-radicalism of the of world war 1 but then a, another the next big opportunity for the american working class presents itself emerges with the labor revolts of the 1930s stretching from the national recovery act in 1933 which sort of inadvertently set off a strike wave to the sit down strikes of of 1937 and you write that the radicalized second generation children of new immigrants were, were key to all of this, as was the fact that skilled workers had come under such intense attack that they were more sympathetic to industrial unionism than they had been during the strike wave of 1909 to 1922. Explain more about why conditions were such that convent, these conventional divides that consistently undermine working class power in the United States, why they were why they were overcome the way they were at that moment, and, and then why that unity and militancy didn't hold and, and did not lead to the creation of, of broad-based radical unions or a labor party. Well, it's often overlooked in the history of the 1930s is that the single most important issue to the rank-and-file workers who led these revolts from 1934, which saw three municipal general strikes in the United States, to the peak of the sit-down wave uh, in 1938. The single most important issue is not wages or the length of the, uh, of the working day. Those were important. But it was the despotism at the point of production it was the untrammeled and sometimes almost fascistic authority of foremen and supervisors. And many Americans, of course, have, have never learned about this history or what it was like, for instance, to work in an auto plant. Uh, if you worked for Henry Ford, for instance, of course, the, he inaugurated the $5 day, which was seen as an immense breakthrough to conciliation between labor and uh, capital. But he also had a company police force, uh, which, amongst other things, had huge arsenals of machine guns and of Tommy guns and tear gas and stuff. And they terrorized workers on the assembly line, beat them up. The rubber industry had its own internal vigilantes, groups of skilled or uh, pro-company workers who were paid extra to spy on other workers. So the minute you step through a factory door in so many industries in the United States, you were subject to this demeaning tyranny of managers, but above all of, of, of foremen who acted in many ways more as cops than simply directors of, of production. So the great demand in the early 30s was to establish some real control over 
the labor process, especially the speed of the production lines, and to establish some modicum of, of democracy or workers' power in the factories through the shop steward system and for using, uh, you know, we know about the great strikes of the 1930s, uh, you know, general strikes in San Francisco or Toledo, the big auto strikes, but there were thousands of little mini strikes and job actions. And very often these were directed precisely at this assertion of democratic rights inside the factory itself. The interesting thing about this period is that you also had, to far greater extent than ever before, an internal cadre of, of leftists. The Communist Party was the largest and most important, but it differed regionally. In Minneapolis, it was the so, what became the Socialist Workers' Party, Trotskyists, and the Teamsters Union. In Toledo, the scene of one of the most important strikes of the early 30s, uh, it was a group led by the pacifist socialist A.J. Musty, a very interesting little socialist sect that uh, then included people like John uh, John Dewey, the most famous American uh, uh, liberal who become radicalized for a while in the, the early 1930s. And it, of course, reached its height with the sit-down strikes. Why go out on a picket line and be beaten, you know, or shot at uh, by the police? Why wait outside while the company marched in armies of strike breakers, of desperate unemployed people, to take your jobs? Take over the factories instead. This is actually an international movement. Maybe the first sit-down strike occurred in Czechoslovakia and spread to France. And then the United States, and in the United States, it grew out of uh, a basic industry, out of rubber, and then the great uh, sit-down strike that produced the unionization of General Motors, the famous Flint sit-down strike. But it occurred everywhere. Women workers at Woolworths, the five-and-dime stores that were uh, even the smallest towns in, in America, they started sitting in at the Woolworths closing the doors, locking themselves inside and, uh, you know, refusing to leave, uh, refusing to uh, be dismissed. This was, this was the most radical moment in many ways of the whole period. But what followed the victories that then ensued was a replacement of the shop committees and rank and file leadership who've been driving these, uh, these struggles by full-time union employees, by business agents, and the evolution of a whole doctrine of collective bargaining based on uh, trading wage and welfare advances, but allowing a restoration of employer power over uh, the assembly line, over the uh, production process. And the Communist Party in this period underwent a great change from being the the tribunes of rank-and-file unionism to becoming an important part of the bureaucracy in alliance uh, with other non-socialist forces uh, in the big unions. And it gave them uh, a great deal of political power in the unions, but it 
broke down many of the bonds that had tied party members as heroic organizers to uh, rank-and-file workers. Finally, if I just might add, there's, there's one sensational study, long out of print, of the microdynamics of plant organization. And it's by a labor historian called Roger Friedlander, The Making of a UAW Local. And it's absolutely fascinating. It shows that the impetus for the organization of the local came from the most skilled workers, the tool and die makers, who, after the bitter experiences of assault on skilled workers for the previous uh, 30 years, had come to embrace the idea of industrial unionism. And several of the leading people in the plant, the tool and die makers, were socialists. They aligned with some other radicals in the plant. They formed the core of an organizing committee. But the key victory in the plant was when the people who did the dirtiest work in the plant, in the paint shops or in the forges, who were Polish street kids. They all belonged to this very much feared Polish uh, uh, street gang and were basically apolitical until that moment. But when they embraced the union, they embraced it with such uh, militancy and you know physical power that the union crossed the threshold then uh, to being able to go on strike and, and win recognition. And that's really how the 30s has to be understood on the micro level as well as on the, the macro level. This moment, you write, marked the CIO union bureaucracies. We, we often think of these, I think, this moment as, as the CIO strikes, but you write that it was, in fact, the, the CIO union bureaucracies, co-optation and absorption of rank-and-file militancy, which was formalized in the United Auto Workers' 1950 Treaty of Detroit with General Motors. A, quote, contract with its five-year no-strike pledge that symbolized the end of the long New Deal fair deal cycle of class struggle and established the model of collective bargaining that prevailed until the 1980s. What were the conditions that this armed truce, what you call an armed truce, which incorporated huge sections of the white ethnic semi-skilled working class into middle class consumption, what were the conditions that that relied upon? And what did that mean for labor once those conditions began to crumble? Why did a, a racially circumscribed and otherwise circumscribed form of, of mass union, unionization and collective bargaining suit American capitalists until it didn't? And why did that whole settlement prove so fickle? First of all, we, we need to understand that in 1938, the country returned to the depths of uh, depression a conservative alliance of Southern Democrats and Republicans obtained a majority in Congress and became an immense obstacle to New Deal reforms. And this stiffened the resolve of holdout employees to resist unionization, the smaller steel companies and Ford Motors being uh, leading examples. In that same period, CIO crystallized its, its own body of intellectuals, much influenced by Western European, but particularly by, also by British developments. And whereas the American Federation of Labor had always opposed federal welfare provisions, it was against any federal intervention 
in uh, labor negotiations at all. And it was opposed to laws that would fix labor conditions because it was grew up in an environment where the courts were straightforward the enemies of uh, labor and most labor legislation was in fact pro-employer uh, legislation. But the CIO in 1938 on and through the Second World War formed an alliance with the New Deal to bring about the equivalent of the reforms won in England after the Labour Party entered government in 1942 and then defeated Churchill at the end of the war to take power. Kind of organized collective bargaining system and universal social welfare programs. And this was embraced by a very diverse uh, group of people, but certainly by the people who are the kind of uh, major intellectuals of, of the CIO on the left wing of a new deal. The war had brought a recomposition of the labor force as millions of people from the rural uh, South were mobilized into wartime industries, black and white. It produced a very nasty series of hate strikes against integration of uh, shipyards, but above all of, of bus lines and uh, uh, public transport. In fact, FDR actually had to send uh, combat troops into Philadelphia to break one of these hate strikes. The end of the war produced an unsettled situation. The 1946 elections, which universally believed would be returned to the New Deal, saw a return of Republicans uh, to power for the first time since 1928 in the, the House of, of Representatives. And it was a situation in which the social welfare part of the platform of the CIO, universal health care, public housing, which were championed above all by Senator Robert Wagner, the great New Deal senator from New York, uh, were defeated. And as a result of this, and because of the fact that even though the, the political climate had deteriorated for New Deal reforms, the unions were more powerful than ever at the point of production. So with the UAW leading the way, two things were accomplished that set the parameters for uh, the great uh, Korean War to mid-1970s expansion of the American economy. On the one hand, the UAW won a landmark agreement that tied wages to productivity. In other words, it guaranteed workers a share of the surplus created by greater productivity in the plants. In other words, the rich would get richer, but the but poor would get richer as well. The workers could count on a regular increment in their income. But in turn, the UAW uh, surrendered uh, so much of the control over the labor process and abandoned, in many respects, the aggressive protection of workers' rights through the shop steward system and, and grievance procedures to achieve that. But secondly, because of the failure of, of housing and health care acts, the union began, the, the industrial unions, the most powerful unions, began to negotiate these demands from the employers. And so from General Motors, 
UAW also won a health plan and enhanced pension uh, uh, plan. These were in large part uh, workers' deferred wages, but they had an employer contribution. So what that meant was that for American workers who belonged to powerful unions, they could get the benefits of a welfare state through collective bargaining and through negotiation. But everybody else was left out uh, in the cold. And of course, we can see what that has meant in terms of the healthcare provisions where the United States had once been distinctive industrial world for its high quality universal public education by the 1970s, what made it most distinctive were soaring cost of medical care and unequal provision, the lack of uh, basic uh, welfare rights that had been won in almost every other industrial uh, country. But that was the labor piece that was negotiated. And of course, against the background of the Cold War and the purging of the left from the CIO unions. But it provided the uh, essential conditions for the boom of the 50s and 60s, along with federal programs like FHA loans and uh, tax deductions uh, uh, for mortgage interest payments and like that, that promoted suburbanization and home, home ownership. And of course, the GI Bill, which allowed half the veterans of World War II to go to college at the end of their service and created an educational revolution that gave white workers in particular, gave their kids unprecedented uh, mobility and access to a growing number of, uh, above all, public teaching jobs, but also entering in the profession, the high level of, of mobility in the case of the most powerful organized sectors of the economy. A major casualty of the labor movement's turn to Cold War liberalism was, of course, the labor movement. Labor's second so-called civil war, uh, which you just referenced a few minutes back, led to the decimation of left-led unions like the Farm Equipment Union and the enormous United Electrical Workers Union, UE. And also, you write, it led to the total failure of Operation Dixie, where anti-communism overwhelmed and undermined the effort to organize the South. And, and so you write that the CIO, quote, failed to make a sustained attack on the citadel of right-wing political power, the rotten borough system of the South. The enfranchisement of the Southern masses should have been the key to the recomposition of the Democratic Party and the consolidation of a liberal labor congressional majority. But the problem of suffrage was inextricably bound up with the existence of those two other pillars of class rule in the South, Jim Crow and the open shop. Only a massive unionization campaign closely coordinated with full support for black civil rights could have conceivably generated the conditions for interracial unity and a popular overthrow of bourbon power. You write that that Martin Luther King and his Poor People's Campaign saw the need for this partnership, but organized labor failed to meet the moment. How did what you call a disarticulation of the labor and black movements take shape amid the Cold War? And and what were the consequences? In 1937, at the height of the uh, sit-down strike wave, 
There was also a national movement to form independent uh, labor parties, former labor party in uh, Minnesota, the Commonwealth Party in Washington, and, and, and so on. This was really a key opportunity to translate economic militancy into uh, political programs separate from the big city political machines and reactionary Southern politicians who dominated the Democratic Party. But it's at that moment that the American Federation of Labor made a great comeback. The CIO represented about uh, a quarter of organized American workers. The rest remained inside the uh, American Federation of Labor. And the AFL leaders were often aligned with this conservative coalition in Congress and openly supported anti-communism as a way to undermine the CIO as the two labor federations have become directly competitive in organizing various sectors of uh, the economy. So this was the, the civil war within inside the labor movement that disabled the movements for independent political representation in the later 30s. After the Second World War, and remember that because Southern Democrats usually were elected for terms of 20 or 30 years on the basis of a radically restricted electorate. They tended to be uh, heads of, of the important committees in the House and dominate in, in uh, the Senate. And so much of the defense spending during the Second War was now allocated to Southern states as well as to uh, Western states. The South suddenly seemed to be undergoing its own industrial revolution. So it was all important for the unions, both craft and industrial unions, to stake out territory in the New South. Now, the communists, and this is where they differed signally from the Socialist Party before 1920s, believed in combining union organization with uh, civil rights, uh, with black liberation. Uh, it wasn't always a successful amalgam in the party, but they understood that to organize in the South, you had to organize on a basis of, of racial unity and to win the conditions for organizing, that is, for freedom of speech uh, and for democratic rights to organize in Southern uh, uh, cities, you had to support the enfranchisement of uh, uh, people of color. You had to attack uh, Jim Crow. And so the purge of the communists from the CIO and the weakening of some of the most powerful uh, unions the United Electrical Workers have been the one big union for the entire electrical industry, in some ways uh, a more powerful position than uh, the UAW, but it had been split up in an attack on its uh, uh, left leadership. So when Operation Dixie was unleashed after the Second War, ambitious organizing campaign in, in the South, it immediately ran into a series of roadblocks. First, the purging of of the left, the largely you know communist left, 
who had an advanced perspective on organizing. And secondly, the increasing accommodation of AFL unions to white supremacy in Southern industries uh, and in Southern crafts. What people had looked at with great hope as a movement that would transform, modernize the South and break some of the shackles of, of oppression over the black population of the South, turn into a, a singing and lasting uh, uh, defeat and basically led to the extirpation of progressive politics in the South for you know, a long historical period. I should add to this that FDR did make one heroic attempt to attack Southern democracy uh, in 1937, 38, when he supported a series of progressive candidates trying to overthrow the, uh, the most conservative bourbon Democrats in the South. But that also was largely a failure. There have been great hopes in the late 30s and 40s that a real revolution in the South had become possible, an end to the control of the racist plantocracy and uh, Southern banks over the economy. And of course, this created then uh, the conditions for the rise of massive resistance against the civil rights movement and the kind of violence that later ensued, absent what otherwise would have been possibly powerful union allies to support the civil rights movement in its hometowns and states. When it comes to the, the end of the New Deal labor bargaining order, you argue that it was the very parochialism of labor defending the narrow interests of particular white workers that ultimately made it so vulnerable when the axe came down because on the one hand it had a relatively narrow social base and also a thin social base because unions were so heavily bureaucratized. You write, quote, in virtually every industry, the supposedly marginal periphery of non-union production has in fact been the redoubt from which, during the 1970s, major assaults have been launched against wage levels and bargaining patterns. In other words, it was the unorganized places and unorganized people that became the springboard for the assault on the entire New Deal order. And you write that this happened early in the meatpacking industry and then in forestry, construction, trucking, and mining. But maybe could, could you lay out what happened to, to the meatpackers to, to illustrate the larger phenomenon? The, the packing house workers under Ralph Helstein, the president, was the solar example uh, within the, the CIO of successful interracial unity far more democratic union than the steel workers or even uh, the UAW. And of course they had a heroic history because the original drive to organize packing house workers when the industry was so concentrated uh, in Chicago, this long protracted strike in 1919 had been broken up by racial terrorism. Actually, the Democratic Party employed a street gang 
called Raglan's Colts. His leader was one street hooligan known as Daly. He would later become his honor, <laughs> Mayor Daly uh, uh, of Chicago, to set fires in a Slavic section of Chicago behind the pack yards, uh, the packing houses, and uh, instigate a race riot to break up the organizational campaign. But the packing house workers persisted. But what happened in the 19, the late 1970s, but above all in the 1980s, was an entry of a big non-union company into beef packing, Iowa beef processors. And Armin Hammer, the oil billionaire, has a museum named after him in uh, uh, Los Angeles, had bought this company. This was the era of conglomerates when, for instance, U.S. Steel was divesting from steel plants to buy an oil company. And people were buying up and trying to manage two or three major companies in completely different parts of the economy. So Arm & Hammer moved into beef processing and he introduced a new technology where in the past, the animals were fabricated into cuts directly after slaughter on on the soft meat with knives now they're cut into to quarters frozen and using uh the equivalent of chainsaws to cut the beef up which was by the way an incredibly dangerous change in uh technology and then using foreign workers of different kinds immigrant workers to run these non-union plants and from beef processing, they then moved into pork processing. And this led to the destruction of any number of locals to the Packing House Workers Union. It also produced some of the great labor struggles of the, of the 1990s. Some unionism, of course, persists. But now we see that the packing houses, with their dangerous working conditions, people standing shoulder to shoulder, you know, wielding chainsaws, uh, become epicenters of the coronavirus, a testament to the degradation of, of working conditions that occurred uh, in the Reagan period with the uh, deunionization of so many sectors and the deregulation of so many industries. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by N Plus One Magazine, which features some of the most urgent and exciting political writing, essays, fiction, and cultural criticism on the left today. Since February, N Plus One has been publishing a ton of clarifying writing about the pandemic that might be of interest to Dig listeners. This month, N Plus One and Verso Books have collected the best of their pandemic coverage into a new ebook called There Is No Outside COVID 19 Dispatches. The book includes contributions on the coronavirus and its economic and political consequences by Gabriel Winnett, Andrew Liu, Sarah Resnick, Anna Cecilia Alvarez. Leila Khalili, Jesse Kindig, and more. And it's free with a subscription to N Plus One. 
Dig listeners can take 25% off a subscription at nplus1.com slash the dig. Enter the dig, no space, at checkout to get three issues delivered in the mail, plus full access to the magazine's online archive and a copy of There Is No Outside, all for less than $3 a month. That's nplusonemag.com slash the dig. And enter the dig, one word, no spaces, at checkout. People tend to look to the 70s as the turning point when when labor spun into crisis with the rise of neoliberalism. But you write that it was in the 60s that, quote, a majority of corporations resorted to the radical socio-spatial strategy pioneered by GE and the non-union sector in the 1950s, building smaller factories for greater managerial control. 500 employees was often reckoned optimum decentralizing them in weakly organized regions of the Sunbelt or the Midwestern rural periphery, recruiting workforces, farmers or housewives, without previous union experience, and implanting from the beginning the manipulative structures of the communications model of personnel management geared toward worker individualism. My question is, how did labor's fragmentation and segmentation during the heyday of organized labor, not only facilitate a more exploitable, segmented labor market for capital, but also mean that that the labor movement lacked the political power and the economic power during the height of Cold War liberalism to resist capital mobility, a, a mobility, I should add, that was funded by the New Deal order and the Cold War state and that created this new geography which to this day is incredibly consequential, of Sunbelt Ascendant Capitalism, a geography that was so uneven in part precisely because of the labor movement's failure to to organize the multiracial working class and exercise power outside of the industrial heartland. How did that all unfold? Well, it unfolded as a series of political defeats, first on the national level with the passage uh, during the Truman period, the Taft-Hartley Act, by the conservative majority of Southern Democrats and Republicans in Congress, that essentially outlawed forms of union solidarity and solidaristic action that have been so vital in the struggle for the 1930s. Things like sympathy strikes, for instance, and boycotts. It created huge obstacles to union organization. The second political defeat was on a state level, and that was the movement to pass uh, right-to-work laws, basically outlawed union shops, allowed workers to opt out of paying dues to, uh, to unions, and in other ways protected non-union em- employers from organization. Later in the 1970s, this would be hugely reinforced by massive illegal violations of the National Labor Relations Act by companies. They found it far cheaper to simply refuse to accept the result of union of, of certification elections and plants and pay some you know fine for that 
the Federal uh, National Labor Relations Board than to accept the result and allow, allow unions. But the right to work states, principally in the Midwest and the, in, in the South, like the non-unionized large companies that survived through the 1950s to become a kind of launching pad for anti-union campaigns, these combined together to create ideal conditions to decentralize production. After the, the 1937 Flint General sit-down strike was so successful because it was one of two plants that produced the dyes for the current model of GM cars. So if you close that plant down, you basically close down GM production and it's dozens of other plants as, as well. And GM decided never to become vulnerable to that again by decentralizing production and having multiple plants producing key components. But with the rise of uh, right-to-work states, this is enormous uh, attraction to decentralized production in the way you talked about and to seek out uh, non-union sources of labor in areas where the political system was decidedly anti-union, anti-labor. And so already in the 1950s, manufacturing employment's increasing, but it's decreasing in the major traditional industrial cities and complexes. I should point out that there were other federal programs that made this possible, including the interstate highway system, which suddenly made you know previously difficult to access rural places, you know, turn them into two or three hours away from you know Detroit, and you begin to see factories organized basically along the lines of interstate highways. So. From Detroit, you had this whole corridor going south of, uh, of key auto suppliers in non-union states. And there's very little opposition from within the ranks of labor itself to these investment decisions. There's very little opposition in the big industrial cities to the beginnings of capital flight and disinvestment. And of course, what happened in the Reagan period, or actually by the late 70s, was you internationalized this process and began to see, instead of just uh, American branch plants or overseas investments, and you began to see really internationalized production lines uh, for the first time, or later called value chains. My book, by the way, of course, has no apprehension of the revolution that was wrought by uh, the uh, industrialization of China and Southern China, Pearl River Delta becoming the uh, the new workshop of the world. Yeah, Japan is the the major focus of uh, your your analysis of of Asian economics at at the time. Yes, and this was the period that led into this incredible obsession with Japan as the the superpower, the inheritor of America's global uh, role. It was also the first inkling. So this really waited until the Clinton administration in the 90s to, to work itself out of a new kind of organization of the labor process, whereas American 
Taylorism, the, the Henry Ford system in the early 20th century, had all been about dismantling uh, skilled work and taking craft knowledge and transferring it from skilled workers to a handful of engineers. The Japanese system, which is actually modeled on a critique of Taylorism in the early 1920s and some American manufacturers, sought instead to exploit workers' mental skills and their understanding of production and find a tremendous new mother load of uh, uh, a profit from mining workers' knowledge, workers' creativity. American industry had responded to, auto industry had responded to Japanese competition in the 70s merely by a more brutal version of the drive system of speed up, of brutalizing uh, uh, work conditions to raise profits, not by the adoption of new systems of organizing uh, production or by trying to cultivate workers' uh, ideas about the assembly process and the organization uh, of production. And this is a major reason, of course, why the American auto industry then fell so far behind the Japanese auto industry, but also uh, European auto firms as well. In terms of the rise of the Sun Belt, what was the relationship between the, the geographic reorganization of American capitalist production on the one hand and then the geographic reorganization of the working class on the other with both the Black Great Migration North and also the less discussed but but huge white great migration south and west. And then I'll add to that the great migration from Mexico into the southwest and then and then beyond. Well, first of all, the what became called the Sun Belt was politically constructed. The South, the agrarian South and the West had been the hinterland of the industrial heartland. They contained, let's I think, in 15% of all manufacturing jobs. They had an almost neo-colonial relationship to uh, New York finance and, and, and Midwestern industry. That changed during the New Deal in a kind of spectacular way. In 1934, the so-called progressive capitalists who supported the New Deal and actually convinced Roosevelt to adopt the National Recovery Act as a way to stimulate demand by allowing companies, sectors of industry to regulate prices and in wages. That proved to be a disaster as unions took advantage of one clause of it on the right to representation, the famous Section 7A, to organize. So pro-democratic industrialists and bankers bolted from the New Deal, and it left a power vacuum in which the rising power in the Democratic Party were now the unions and the, and the CIO, and were left forces like the Upton Sinclair's epic campaign in California were positioned to seize control of, uh, of the party. And so Roosevelt turned to an odd coalition of Western and Southern industrialists, and these included Giannini, the head of Bank of America, in California. It included Mariner Eccles, 
the most important uh, Mormon banker. He was also one of the few actual Keynesians of the 1930s. But above all, it was coordinated by the towering figure of Jesse Jones, Mr. Houston, really the political czar and creator of, 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 of modern Houston. So this group of Western and Southern capitalists, in a sense, saved the New Deal from capture by its own left wing or by, uh, or by labor. And they extracted, along with the leverage given to them by uh, Southern seniority in Congress, larger shares of government, of federal spending and investment, including a federally uh, subsidized and, and directed revolution in Southern agriculture uh, that displaced, would displace several million people, maybe as many as 10 million people from the land, but also the deciding, the, the siting of war industries and federal investment in places like Houston, the Gulf seaboard cities, New, uh, New Orleans, some investment in the Intermountain uh, uh, states. And this was a new alliance of what had been outside capital, which took tremendous advantage of New Deal policies to transform what had been a hinterland into what by the 1970s had become a developed part of the United States and by the Reagan era, uh, more than the majority, more than half of the manufacturing investment in the United States were in these states of the South and West that were called the Sun Belt by uh, political pundits at the time. Now, the thing about the consequences of this is that white workers displaced from the land, white tenants and so on, moved to southern cities and found jobs. Blacks weren't allowed in these jobs. So black southerners displaced from the land by the mechanization of cotton ended up in northern cities. And, of course, during the war, there's tremendous demand for their labor. But there wasn't such a demand during the Korean War boom. Blacks were almost totally excluded for that. And so they ended up in the worst place at the worst time for basically unskilled migrants with none of the opportunities that Irish and or Southern and Eastern European immigrants had at the height of uh, the second industrial revolution in the, the early 20th century in mass assembly. So they were basically shoved off the land in, into positions of, of permanent unemployment in northern cities. And in terms of the, the Mexican migration that this, the Sunbelt boom? Well, then, then, then of course, the, the first migration was migration out of the South that started in the war, but then became, uh, in many ways, a uh, flight from the South, particularly of, of black Southerners who were unable to get jobs in the new Southern industry. The second migration, as the South and West not only industrialized, but began to attract high-tech investment as well, was from the North to the South, above all to Texas and Florida, and to the part of rural Virginia that was becoming the suburbs of, uh, uh, of Washington, uh, D.C. And as Northerners moved South, either simply as, as blue-collar workers looking 
for better employment opportunities in the South, or as professionals. They, of course, were easily integrated into the racial caste system of the Southern states. Uh, Many of them remained Democratic voters for a period, but then began to both the Democratic Party as did Native Southern white workers in the 1960s to the banner of George Wallace, who crafted the kind of racist uh, neo-populism with the pretense of also being anti-oligarchical, anti-Eastern establishment, which Nixon then adopted and became the motif through the Republican Party after Reagan's victory over uh, Rockefeller in the um, 1980 Republican Convention. One key feature of this geographic reorganization was was how it shaped the uneven integration of the U.S. and Mexican economies, making it that, quote, Mexico alone provided an almost infinite reserve army of labor for the Sunbelt. The neocolonial logic of Sunbelt capitalism ensures that no fundamental challenge can be mounted against the domestic low-wage economy without a simultaneous change in the borderland structures of hyper-unemployment and domination. It's a powerful set of lines. Explain how the border, both literally in terms of la linea and also more, more generally, abstractly, as the system that produces undocumented worker status, how that became this core democratic conflict that's fundamental to the economic balance of power in this country, something similar to the what the exclusion of black workers that we've been discussing has long presented. The, the border is usually talked about as a wall, but in fact, it's always operated as, as a dam. That is, it creates a reservoir of labor regulated by police power and, and, and by violence to supply the needs of southwestern agriculture and to some extent already at the turn of the 20th century uh, to railroad uh, labor and, and, and to mining. And the epic change began to occur in the late 1960s, but above all in the 1970s, where both long resident uh, Chicano, Mexican-American populations, but also new immigrants, began to find more entry into traditional blue-collar occupations, but above all into, into low-wage occupations. One of the great stories of uh, the late 70s and the 1980s of course, was that for every manufacturing job created, there were 10 jobs created in the tertiary sector, the so-called service sector, though it's much more than that. Above all, in things like healthcare, banking insurance, and the fast food industry. This is also a period, of course, when women are entering the labor force in larger numbers, usually into poorly paid or, or lower paid paid jobs. But the border then becomes an, an, an essential part of, you know, what had basically been a system to regulate the supply of agricultural labor and also to prevent its organization, then becomes uh, a new labor source 
for low-wage sectors of the economy, which are growing rapidly in the Reagan period. But then suddenly the American auto industry faced under this tremendous competition from Japan begins to use Mexican labor. And Mexican labor tends to be as well-educated in most cases as American labor to produce auto parts. And finally, you get to the stage of the last 15 years where even the most complex things like engines are made in Mexico. And this, of course, is a, uh, a universal phenomena of, of globalized uh, uh, production, where Eastern Europe, for instance, becomes the Slovakia and Poland become the kind of Mexicos of West Germany or Vietnam and uh, Indonesia become the uh, uh, assembly platforms for uh, Japanese and now Chinese investment. So you end up with kind of three, three working classes in the U.S. There is the remains of the unionized working class with decent wages, which is shrinking in the private sector but growing in the public sector. Public sector jobs now have become, in the early Reagan era, uh, the major source of, of new high-wage jobs in the country. And you have this rapidly expanding sector of low-wage employment and services and healthcare. And then you, you, you have a workforce that has no citizen rights at all, is made the most vulnerable both to workplace abuse and, and oppression, but when it attempts to organize, can uh, also be uh, deported as well by, uh, by employers. And this has grown, of course, to a very large and very integral part of the American working class. If you, for instance, will say that the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Re Revolution enfranchise millions of, of new black voters, a much larger number of workers in the American economy have lost or never possessed the right to vote because of their immigration status. And we're talking, and of course, with the, with the adoption of uh, more militarized methods of controlling the border, it's changed the character of, of immigration because what used to be a flux back and forth following the tides of the business cycle of male workers from Mexico working in construction and agriculture. Now it was necessary for people to uh, stay. It was too costly to go back and forth. The female component of the non-documented workforce increased you know, dramatically. So you have this kind of HELOT class in America that reproduces and represents in, in, in the current generations the role that cotton, peonage, and servitude played after Reconstruction or slavery before the Civil War. Reagan and the whole new right arose not only because of this geographic reorganization or because corporations got newly mobilized in groups like the Business Roundtable, but, and these are all interrelated, of course, but m most importantly, you argue, 
because of a mobilized and revanchist middle class, the the core of what you call a haves coalition that throughout the 70s led these huge fights against the have-nots by opposing school integration by way of busing, housing integration, and property taxes, all while national economic debates were, were increasingly shifting into the guise of social issues and, and culture wars. My question is, how, how did the, the economic dynamics of, of stagflation in the 70s and, and its resolution by way of the Volcker shock, how did that all create this sense of scarcity and middle-class militancy against the poor and particularly poor people of color? And why and how were portions of the white working class drawn into this alliance? Well, of course, the strategy that had been outlined in the late 60s for Nixon by Kevin Phillips and Pat Buchanan, it said that the real opportunity for the creation of a durable Republican majority has to be to win over New Deal, blue-collar workers, ethnic white workers uh, in the northern states. And the major issue, of course, was that of school integration because the structures of segregation proved so much more powerful and durable in the North than in the South itself. Uh, there were no breakthroughs equivalent to the Birmingham struggle or, 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 or Selma in Northern cities, quite the opposite. Look at the defeat of Martin Luther King's campaign to integrate housing in Chicago, for instance. So they outlined a program by which you'd take two or three cutting-edge issues, racial equality, resistance to racial equality being one, resistance to women's rights and abortion, because that directly appealed to uh, evangelical Protestants, but particularly to, to Catholics, traditional Democratic Catholic voters. And that became a kind of new template in the Nixon era, but was further transformed in the Reagan era by the rise of huge protest movements uh, based in suburbs, northern suburban fringes of uh, large cities. Particularly California. And if you look back at the 20th century, historically, you look back at the post-war period, second half of the 20th century in the United States, The biggest protest movements were not the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, but far larger and politically consequential were these middle-class protest movements against school integration by by busing, against property taxes. These, you know, engaged tens of thousands, even, uh, even hundreds of thousands of white suburban voters both blue-collar but especially middle-class, in defense of their suburban sanctums and, and privileges. In California, for example, where the tax revolt became, in a way, the, the engine that propelled Reagan into, in, into power, suburban white populations, many of which had been poor immigrants, white immigrants to California in the 40s, early 50s, well, their kids are now through high school and uh, maybe even through through college. So the huge investments in public education in California that had given such startling mobility uh, to their children, to blue-collar white kids like me who grew up in, 
in, in the 50s, well, their kids were now aging. There is no similar commitment to provide the same opportunities to black or Latino kids. And school busing was driven not, although the slogans were always, you know, the neighborhood school and so on. They not only were opposed to racial equality, they were opposed to the costs associated with maintaining public education systems or welfare systems that were not directly beneficial to them. One of the hallmarks of, of the Nixon period was he actually increased uh, public spending, but he took, for instance, urban funds and transferred them from inner cities to white suburban areas. And you can see an increasing political subsidization of middle-class Republican voters in the suburbs, as well as this politics of uh, racial revanchism uh, to white workers. Of course, in this period, we're also beginning to flee the central cities in large numbers and move, move to the suburbs. But the political economy of the country was changing. The business roundtable, which had organized against the attempt at labor law reform, the last great political offenses of the AFL-CIO uh, in 1978 under, under Carter, this was an unprecedentedly broad and powerful organization of the largest 200 corporations in, in America. But in some ways, they were not the major uh, beneficiaries of Reagan's election. It was the new and old middle classes. It was the incessant privatization and cuts in public spending that created entrepreneurial opportunities in what had been the, uh, the public sector. And of course, the main voter attraction that the Republicans offered were massive tax cuts for the upper echelons of the income pyramid. And so increasingly, politics turned into machine to subsidize and went over upper level white workers and middle class voters to a politics that also allowed the big corporations a freedom that they had never possessed since the uh, since the 1940s through deregulation of major industries, particularly, and then later under Clinton, the deregulation of uh, banking. In a sense, is there a through line from the early New Right Goldwaterites through Reagan and then to Trump in this petty bourgeois middle strata meets lumpen billionaire reactionary alliance, which accounts for everything from reflationary populism and protectionism to the racism and the nationalism? Well, it's, it's interesting that the Southern Western Coalition of Independent Industrialists and Bankers, that it's one behind uh, FDR in 1934, many of them, like the Houston oil men, the Merchantsons, the Richardsons, and so on, became the, the financiers of the far right and of the John Birch Society in the 1950s. And then the chief supporters of Barry Goldwater in 1964, and then of Reagan in the 1980 elections. What is so startling today, however, and what has changed so much over the last decade or 15 years, 
is the fact that there no longer is a business roundtable. The biggest industrial corporations play a much smaller role, of course, in the economy, and they have a much smaller political presence. But the Reagan boom created conditions for the emergence of, of new fortunes of turning local millionaires into uh, billionaires uh, like the Waltons in, in Arkansas or the Cokes in Texas and Kansas uh, and so on. And it's this new billionaire class, which you might call the lumpen billionaires, of course, who've been the major supporters and beneficiaries of, of Trump's election. Though it must be emphasized that the, the 2016 election is not the political realignment that so many people believe it was, where suddenly Trump won over this large mass of northern white blue collar voters. What in fact happened in the North was that so many of the voters who flocked to Wallace uh, and then to Reagan went back to supporting Democrats on a local and state level or ended up supporting uh, Clinton or even, you know, even Obama. Uh, it was not a permanent switch in the North. It was in the South. In South, the political loyalties were entirely inverted, but not in the North. I mean, the key thing about Trump's victory was this group of, of political ideologues and media experts have been assembled by the uh, Mercer family, billionaire hedge fund dynasty, to support Ted Cruz. After the defeat, of, it was certain that uh, Cruz was defeated. Uh, they cut a deal with, with, with Trump, which basically was that they would give their support to Trump, but he had to fully accede to the traditional agenda of the Christian right. And so this allowed Trump to do what everybody thought was impossible, which was to win most of the voters who'd voted for uh, Romney in the last election, the evangelical base and uh, Southern supporters, because he, of course, gave them the Republican platform. Uh, they were allowed to write it, uh, the most reactionary platform of any party since uh, the, 18, uh, the 1850s. But the conundrum that hasn't been fully resolved and, and needs to be debated is how have these guys, these regional billionaires, these what were formerly second or third echelon figures come to dominate national politics in the way they have for the last uh, four years, and whether this is not the you know the last hurrah, the final act before a new, new majority takes power or not, it is a very startling fact to see that the traditional Eastern establishment capital plays so small a role in Republican politics today, that Republican politics has been reinvented as a isolationist nationalist, economic nationalist politics of the same sort that existed amongst the uh, hardcore anti-New Dealers and the Liberty League 
1939-1940. Some of the most powerful passages of the book are on why liberals and the left, respectively, were so helpless against Reagan. And you criticize Michael Harrington and the old DSA, and uh, at least a plurality, if not a majority of my listeners, are likely members of the new DSA. So this is of significant interest. Criticize Harrington and DSA for backing the labor-backed Cold War liberal Mondale over Jackson's Rainbow Coalition in the 84 Democratic primary. How did this conflict between a black-led social democratic movement and Cold War liberalism emerge with, with, with DSA at its, you know, from this perspective, from this moment, oddly, at its back? And, and how did the rise of new Democrats like Gary Hart, who was also a candidate that year, these new new politics, post-68 liberal, neoliberals, how did that that fit in? Well, the 1984 election was the transition from the remnants of a New Deal Democratic Party to a new party dominated by neoliberals. Many of them were young Democratic governors in the, in the South and the West, people like Hart or Bill Clinton in Arkansas. And Michael Harrington was always, in a way, the the one figure who stood out in a socialist stratum of blinded in many ways by, by anti-communism, included major intellectual figures like Irving Howe and so on. But when the New Democratic Movement, with about 2,500 or 3,000 members, merged with the Democratic Socialist Organizing Committee, the Harrington Howe Group, the dissent group, it ended up being on the terms of, of the latter, not the former. And in many ways, the new American movement lost its new, new left identity in the merger. And some of its leading lights and people who formerly considered themselves revolutionaries embraced the whole traditional agenda of the League for Industrial Democracy and the remains of the, the American Socialist Party, which was to realign the party in an alliance with UAW and other big progressive unions. Uh, following this theory, the Democratic Party was really the functional equivalent of social democracy in this country. And uh, every, every priority was less than that ensuring the continuing realignment of the Democrats to uh, to left. But in fact, what had actually been happening is under Jimmy Carter, particularly the second half of his tenure after 1978, the party had been moving to the right and beginning to shed the single most important aspect of its New Deal identity, which was full employment. Full employment had been had been the, in a sense, the alpha and the omega, the post-war uh, Democratic Party. Its commitment uh, to jobs and jobs that offer opportunities through mobilities that began to be abandoned. Uh, Mondale moved away from it. Gary Hart represented the the new uh, liberal breed. He was also reactionary on fundamental labor questions, who like Mondale. Uh, was an interventionist in terms of uh, U.S. foreign policy. But because of the abandonment of 
full employment and the New Deal agenda, first by these older mainstream Democrats, and then more emphatically by the younger neoliberals, it created a space. It left a vacant space, which was filled then by Jesse Jackson and the Rainbow Coalition. It started off as Jackson's attempt to do what had been the black power strategy of Stokely Carmichael and SNCC back in the uh, 1966, 1977, which is to use black political independence to leverage uh, more concessions from the Democratic Party that otherwise regarded blacks as a captive vote. And it rose out of a historic progressive uh, black series of black political conferences. But as Jackson immediately discovered and immediately responded to, loads of other people supported his agenda. And he had this striking, dramatic success in winning white working class voters and unionists in the upper mid, uh, Midwest who were willing to support black equality because the Rainbow Coalition also represented the defense of the historic rights of, of labor and the dream of, uh, of full employment. He tested the waters for the politics which has emerged in, in the last four or five years. But he ended up uh, attacked uh, from all sides, including by some of the newly minted Social Democrats uh, who joined uh, uh, DSA. The thing that distinguishes the Rainbow Coalition in its first incarnation in 1984 from the Sanders campaign over the last five years, however, is that Jackson had a, a, a very specific, explicit foreign policy. It was anti-imperialist, anti-interventionist, U.S. out of Central America. This was a much larger part of the politics of the Rainbow Coalition than it's been the case with our revolution and, and the Sanders movement, which has evaded foreign policy issues as much as possible. I don't know that, that the Bernie movement has abated it as, as much as possible. I, I agree that there's a contrast there, but if you look at at Bernie's leadership in terms of breaking with with pro Israel orthodoxy in the Democratic Party, and also in terms of the, the the campaign to end U.S. support for the war on Yemen, it it has been a distinguishing factor. I disagree to some extent. I think that it's been a kind of minimal program. I mean, I think everyone understands where Bernie's heart lies and understands this past history support for revolutions. But I think this is an internal crisis of the current generation of the American left, is that it is so completely focused on domestic equality and social justice. Two key litmus tests were, did the questions of nuclear disarmament and third world poverty and death uh, were they raised in any of the primary debates or in any of the major speeches by either Sanders or Warren? And the answer is no. And I think in the 1970s, in the kind of experimental social democracy uh, under black leadership that the Rainbow Coalition represented, 
was a far more uh, internationalist consciousness. This, of course, was the time of the uh, of, of beginning of massive intervention and counter-revolution in Central America. And the anti-apartheid struggle. And the, the anti-apartheid struggle uh, beginning to pick up. So uh, a lot of people pat themselves on the back uh, who were missing for years and years when the only anti-apartheid action were carried out by a couple of small black groups, particularly one in, in L.A. In terms of the black leadership at the time, how was it that DSA and Harrington failed to see the obvious opportunity that Jackson represented to lead precisely the sort of realignment that ostensibly people like Harrington wanted to pursue? Is the reason that they couldn't recognize that this was precisely the opportunity that Jackson offered, an opportunity to build what you call a, a neo-Fordist social democracy with a multiracial mass constituency? Was it because it appeared with black leadership and anti-imperialist politics? No, uh, it wasn't. It was because they were so firmly in the pocket of labor and so firmly convinced that the Ruther wing of the labor movement was the chief dispensation that God had given to uh, the American left to create a lasting progressive politics. And by the fact that they were willing to concede to Lane Kirkland's continuation of, of the MENI leadership of, of the AFL-CIO. No, I mean, that was their fundamental problem. It was the problem back in the 60s and their attitude to the new left and uh, the anti-war movement. If they wouldn't do anything to alienate Detroit, there also many of them had been tied, the old guard tied to... Um, Dubinsky's clothing union in New York, which was a progressive union in its political chances, but was a racist union internally. Huge abuses of, uh, of, of the rank and file. These same people did not put themselves behind the big revolt of rank and file workers and wildcat strikes from 1968 to 73. So they, in effect, had become house intellectuals or a left wing of the U.S. labor movement that, in fact, was rapidly disappearing after the election of uh, Reagan. You, you do also write, though, the, about the, the white left that, quote, the decisive problem of the fate of the second Reconstruction was displaced beyond the field of vision, that they didn't take the centrality of black freedom struggles seriously enough. See, well, to go back to the beginning of uh, this conversation, the people who said that because there was no outstanding democratic test before the American working class, like the struggle for suffrage in Europe, therefore, if you didn't have, uh, couldn't have a socialist or radical working class. But of course, um, emancipation and black liberation have been this central abiding revolutionary democratic task something that has been also the original sin of the American left again and again in the 19th century and also in the case of uh, the Debsian Socialist Party. I mean, part of the, the, the Communist Party's great attraction was its attempt to, to combine revolutionary democratic struggle for black and Latino liberation with industrial unionism. 
and to make the factories uh, crucibles of uh, equality and integration. And so large union locals could then become chief supports, for instance, to African-American communities. And of course, that happened to some extent. The packing house workers were the one union that dared to march on the streets with Martin Luther King demanding uh, housing integration in, in, in Chicago. The auto workers, while they were becoming more autocratic vis-a-vis their own membership, were the one union that supported nonviolent civil rights struggles across, across the country. So this has always been the defining and urgent uh, democratic uh, task. And what we see today is very interesting because you, on one hand, have this full-scale assault on the second reconstruction, on the civil rights revolution, which flashpoint has always been, of course, police violence, but it's the attrition, the attempted uh, attrition of, of black voting power, the fact that black community is now, since 2008, found itself in a and a new depression, economic equality growing, growing every gator. You have that on one side, but on the other side, the children of the baby boom generation and their children suddenly find themselves in the most unfavorable position for mobility and future income, house ownership of any generation since the, the Great Depression of the 1920s. And what's, I think, been so outstanding in so many of the protests have been the role of first-generation college students from African-American and immigrant families, Latino, Asian, Filipino families, faced with the fact that their, their families have made enormous sacrifices to send themselves to college only to graduate with degrees that offered little more mobility than a job with, as a barista with Starbucks. So it's been this fusion of frontal attacks on the civil rights gains of the 1960s. And at the same time, the startling downward mobility of college graduates, particularly those from working class and immigrant uh, families. I mean, that's, it's created a whole new set of political possibilities in the United States. For the first time in American history, you have a demographic which pulls at least 50% in favor of socialism and capitalism, whatever socialism may mean specifically to to people. And that's an astonishing thing. Well, Mike Davis, thank you very, very much. My pleasure, Dan. Mike Davis is the author of many books, including, of course, Prisoners of the American Dream, Politics and Economy in the History of the U.S. Working Class. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said, after noting that the police, the judiciary, and the administration are not deputies of civil society itself, which manages its own general interest in and through them. Rather, they are office holders of the state whose purpose is to manage the state in opposition to civil society. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, 
Our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please do find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it is on iTunes, you can also leave us a nice review. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners. So does spreading the word to your friends. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us on Patreon.com and make a monthly contribution to keep this operation up and running strong. Even a few bucks is huge. Mm-hmm.